to the Environmental Leadership Chronicles, a podcast brought to you by the California Association of Environmental Professionals. This episode is a feature in our CEQA series featuring Ethan Elkind, the Director of the Climate Program at the UC Berkeley School of Law and serving on a joint committee at the UCLA School of Law. Ethan researches and writes on law and policies that address climate change. He previously taught at the UCLA Law School's Frank Wells Environmental Law Clinic and served as an environmental law research fellow. His book, Railtown, on the history of the modern Los Angeles metro rail system, was published by the University of California Press in January 2014. He is co-host of the weekly call-in radio show, State of the Bay, on the San Francisco NPR affiliate, KALW 91.7 FM, airing on Monday nights at 6 p.m., and a frequent guest host on KALW's Your Call morning call-in show. Ethan's also recently launched his own podcast, Climate Break, which brings stories of climate progress and interviews with climate innovators in California and around the world, 90 seconds at a time. Ethan speaks with us about the benefits of CEQA, improving CEQA for public disclosure, and reform opportunities to meet climate goals. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, I'm Jessa. And I'm Laurel. And today's guest is Ethan Elkind. Thanks for so much. Thanks for so much. Thanks so much for being here. We appreciate it. I haven't done anything yet, but uh, I'm very glad to be here. So thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Let's start with uh, how you're connected or not connected to AEP. Well, this is actually my first connection to AEP. I appreciate the invitation. And, you know, as a academic in the ivory tower here, I don't tend to, you know, get too involved in with clients and practitioners. I mean, we, we work with those folks, but, uh, but it's great to be connected to you guys and, uh, and to learn about the work that you're doing. Yes, we welcome as many professionals that would like to join the AEP community um, who are interested in it. We were referred to us by Marie Campbell, who is on a state board of directors for AEP. She owns Savos Environmental out of Pasadena. And so those of us professionals know who you are because of your background and the work that you do at Berkeley in the climate space and CEQA. So why? A career in the environmental profession. What does it mean to you? How did this whole thing start? Well, for me, it really starts with just a passion for the environment. I, I care a lot about the natural environment. I grew up in California. And I think, you know, even for people who haven't grown up here, you know, if you live in a place like California, you know, you you come here because of the climate. I mean, that's one of the big factors, you know, and even if you're not here directly because of, you know, the natural beauty and the climate here in the state, you know, chances are your employer located here. I mean, there's a reason why one out of 10 Americans lives in California. It's a beautiful place. And so for me growing up here, you know, I, I spent summers in the Sierra Nevadas, enjoying the, you know, the hills around the Bay Area, the coast. It's it's just a place that and my family culture as well really instilled in me a real appreciation for the environment. So when it came time to choose a career, I really wanted to do something to help you know, preserve the environment for future generations and preserve the places that I love. And once I got into it, then I learned about climate change and and just the existential threat that that poses to life on Earth, or at least human life on Earth and a lot of other species as well. So, you know, to me, it's a really critical, um, it's a critical per- field to go into just because of the urgency now, the emergency situation that we find ourselves in. So I think, you know, folks can can go into the field and have a passion for it. There's a real need. Uh, to, you know, to get a lot of work done on it. 
Yes. I mean, I couldn't agree more. Yep. Yep. To all those things. What did your career path look like? Uh, what led you to your current position at UC Berkeley? Well, my career path was a little bit windy coming out of college because I was actually a musician and was playing music and trying to make a uh, sort of a professional career as a, as a songwriter and performer. Uh, I and forgot that about for- that. You have released an album. Uh, yeah, I put out a, a couple a couple albums back when that was a thing before uh, everyone you know streamed singles and you know albums are kind of you know mostly dead although they're still around but uh, but yeah that was my thing so I, I moved to Los Angeles uh, my now wife was in a PhD program down there so it kind of worked out perfectly that I wanted to pursue music um, but uh, ultimately I learned pretty quickly the music professional music industry not for me I still love playing music but to have your your career depend on it kind of took some of the fun out of it. Uh, but I did work for a record company, a major record label, uh, for a number of years, and then realized that what I really care about is policy issues, you know, things like the environment, uh, social justice was part of that, and um, kind of looked around at different avenues to to make an impact, and then realized that law school could be a really good fit in part because with a law degree, you can do almost anything. I mean, I'd actually seen this in the music industry that there were lawyers who were actually running the companies and working on the creative side too. And that having a law degree kind of got you in the door, gave you credentials, and then you could use that in all sorts of ways. And people with law degrees are doing all sorts of things uh, in society. I I will share this little anecdote. Our AEP president, Bill Halligan is also a musician. He's in a band. He's an attorney. He works on policy in Sacramento. And he also leads our AEP jam band that plays music at all of our concerts and events. So you could join us in right. many different ways, not just not just environmental law, but also jamming. No, that would be great. I'll put in a pitch. I can play rhythm guitar. I can sing. I, I play saxophone too. So, um, you know, we can have an offline conversation about it, but happy to, to join the band there. Um, and uh, yeah, we need more jam bands. So this is, uh, this is definitely filling an important need. Um, but yeah, so then law school and then graduated from law school from UCLA and was invited to come back and help teach in the environmental law program there. And then an opportunity opened up at UC Berkeley for me to come here and, uh, and continue working with UCLA on a joint climate uh, focused research program. And then that's just kind of one thing led to another. And here I am, you know, 14 years later and uh, directing our climate program at the, at Berkeley Law Center for Law, Energy and the Environment. So it's been a kind of a non-traditional career path. One other thing I'll mention too, is that coming out of law school, I also started a nonprofit with um, a former professor of mine uh, focused on setting up a mediation service for tribal communities in the American Southwest and specifically at the uh, Hopi tribe. So I was working on that part-time as well as uh, working for the environmental law clinic at uh, at UCLA. So I'm still engaged with that nonprofit. It's called the Nekwatsvewat Institute, Um, but uh, full-time job is working on environmental issues. Thank you for sharing that. I, for those of us that don't work at a university, what does the day look like for you? What do you do on a daily basis as the director? What is this? Yeah, well, my job is, it's not a, uh, traditional faculty job. So I'm not teaching. I mean, I do occasionally teach courses, but it's really running a research program, you know, for the staff, students, faculty. Uh, we collaborate with other uh, departments on campus, but uh, it's a lot of things. I mean, it's uh, it's researching, drafting, editing, reviewing policy reports. It's helping to organize events. So we do public conferences. We do private 
stakeholder-based convenings. Um, it's sometimes things like blogging or you know writing op-eds, working on the kind of communication side of things. Uh, some media outreach, uh, you know, media access for quotes on uh, on different topics. And it's also just you know checking the news and trying to stay current on what's happening out there. Uh, and then, of course, there's always administrative aspects to any job, or at least there is to my job. And so, you know, reviewing budgets and uh, submitting grant proposals and talking to different funders and uh, state agency folks. And so it's a lot of things. But the, the meat of what we do is our policy reports, law and policy reports and, uh, and events. So that, that's most of what my job is, uh, is focused on. How does CEQA weave its way into your world of policy making and writing and commenting? Well, CEQA, you know, touches on almost everything we do. I mean, we we cover land use, you know, particularly housing and housing near transit. We cover transportation infrastructure, you know, rail, bike lanes, high speed rail. Uh, we cover uh, renewable energy deployment, energy storage deployment, how we can decarbonize our electricity system. So, I mean, CEQA affects all of those things. Uh, we do a lot on electric vehicles as well. And even that, you know, is part of, of CEQA when you're looking at, you know, things like uh, air quality, greenhouse gas impacts, uh, a little less so when it comes to siting, say, like electric vehicle charging stations. But uh, but basically, I mean, if you're working in California and you're trying to get something done, uh, you know, even on the environment, CEQA is going to be a, a big factor there. And then we, we've covered some other issues as well, like wildfires, wildfire resilience, and um, uh, also... Um, well, well, that's probably the big one where I think CEQA comes into play, but, um, but also things like how we phase out our fossil fuel infrastructure and like oil and gas production in the state and CEQA, you know, potentially can play a very big role in helping to phase out at least some of the dirtiest wells in the state. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and, and we've also just looked directly at CEQA itself. You know, we put out policy reports on how can we streamline CEQA for the things that are environmentally good that we want to see more of and how can we make CEQA more, uh, more stringent for those things that, you know, are really damaging to the environment, specifically the climate. So yeah, before, yeah, part of what we do. before I get into the, the sequel questions, wanted to make a comment that AEP holds an all day Institute every year. And all those topics that you touched on have been like a topic at our Institute. I think a few years ago was housing and um, we had wildfire. Of course we do transportation, BMT, LOS, and then uh, wildfire. Did I already mention wildfire? Anyway, the, we do all those topics, right? Well, next year is going to be housing again. We're circling back because a few years ago, we did a report on what is the state of housing in California. And that report that came out of the Institute has been used a lot in policymaking. And now we're going to revisit and go, how can I practically use the sequence streamlining tools that exist, the tiering, the exemptions, the infill, like all the things, how can I use those? Because what we've noticed is that public agencies are very reluctant to use the streamlining tools available for housing, and we need to be doing that. So hopefully you can get engaged in that conversation, being um, an expert in that realm. But when it comes to CEQA, we've been having a lot of conversations with folks about uh, what they like about it, what's working, and then what's not. What kind of CEQA reform do you want to see as somebody who comments on it? Yeah. Well, you know, CEQA at its heart, it makes a whole lot of sense. And I think it's ultimately a good government um, kind of a statute. And then, of course, all the regulations and case law that go with it, which is just that if government officials are going to make decisions. They should have some information in advance about what the impacts are going to be. And they should inform the public about what those impacts are and allow the public to have a voice 
and then they should mitigate those impacts when they're significant. I mean, if, if we're talking to secret practitioners, you know, everything I said is kind of, you know, probably something that's etched into, you know, people's brains and people probably have tattoos with the secret codes and all those sorts of things. So I'm, I'm, I know I'm speaking to the right audience here with all this stuff, but the basic idea is very sound. And I would love it if we applied that principle to, you know, almost all government decisions. Uh, the problem that I see with CEQA is that it's ex- it, it's essentially uh, just completely burdensome now to d- not just project developers and become a way to not just, you know, delay and improve a project, but actually kill projects, which was not the intent of CEQA. And then for the public, it's overly burdensome. I mean, at this point, it's a technocratic exercise. And the original goal of informing the public is lost when you, you know, click on a web page with the CEQA documents and it's multiple huge PDFs, you know, totaling hundreds of pages. That's not useful to the public. That is just an exercise in just verbiage that, you know, are often copy and pasted in. And then if there's any hole in what, you know, the the CEQA documentation has, it's easy for any lawyer to come along and challenge it and, and hold things up. So I feel like we've kind of lost the point of CEQA, which is really about just let's do a basic level of disclosure and assessment and mitigate where it makes sense and have that be done in a, in a pretty you know straightforward, time limited kind of a process. And, and I think we, we've really lost that thread. It's you know I think it's really about you know a lot of good intentions paving the road to we all know where. And I think you know it, it made all these little decisions made sense at the time we want to add this impact and that impact or this level of analysis but what we've ended up with now is a situation where it's really hard to get anything done in California and that's a problem for the environment because to get out of our climate mess we need to start deploying a lot of climate friendly technology we need to do so urgently and CEQA is not really designed anymore to allow that to happen um and then on top of that like i say this is a, a process that's not useful to public and is often abused by special interests. Um, mm-hmm. So I am sympathetic to a lot of the industry claims around CEQA, although not all of them. Um, and uh, and I do think ultimately I wouldn't want to see CEQA thrown out. I would just want to see it really return to you know the original purpose and intent and usefulness of it. Yeah, we've had a, a recent panel where we're like, okay, I think everyone agrees that we don't want to just throw CEQA out the window, but we need to be using it in a more thoughtful and strategic way that's more meaningful. And I just read a report from the Nature Conservancy talking about, um, they were commenting on the Lithium Valley area of Southern California, where we're developing power and and minerals for electric vehicles. And like the biggest takeaway out of the whole report was the information that developers and CEQA and the California Energy Commission and various other public agencies are providing, it's very hard for the public to understand. It's like, we're not engineers. We're not, we're just lay people um, trying to live our lives and these big projects are being proposed in California. And and I'm so thankful I have this opportunity to comment. However, I don't even know how to comment because I don't understand what's going on. Um, And to that end, then there's this very sophisticated group of people, strategery, as we like to say in my family, that do everything strategically. And that, those were kind of my professional thoughts and feelings about the UC Berkeley case recently about um, the long-range development plan and student housing and kind of classifying students as pollution. What are your professional um, thoughts and opinions about that case and what came out of it and how it relates to CEQA? Yeah, I mean, the case was definitely a real black eye for those who you know fundamentally agree with the purpose of CEQA. Um, I think they, I think 
you know, the plaintiffs in that case overstepped. And I think the remedy that the court imposed to freeze enrollment was really unnecessary. So, you know, there may, I, I didn't follow the, the details of the case all that closely. Uh, there may have been missteps by the university. There may have, you know, there may have been good grounds for improving the environmental documentation. But I think the remedy was so harsh. Um, and especially at a time, you know, when, you know, people are struggling, they're struggling with housing, they're struggling with high education costs. It's just, it was a pretty tone deaf outcome for that decision. I'm not surprised you saw the legislature step in right away. You know, it was overwhelming bipartisan majorities to to undo that decision. So, it, it, you know, at any level, it was just, it was unfortunate. And I think, you know, a, a huge overreach by uh, CEQA plaintiffs in this case. And in other, you mentioned earlier about how CEQA is a public disclosure act. It's really helpful to inform uh, decision makers about what the impacts are and the mitigation and all those things. Um, And in talking about the public, maybe becoming so technical that that the public can't really understand it. um, What do you feel like the burden of communicating should be on the developer, on the CEQA lead agency, on the um, other land use authorities or like who who needs to fix the communications with the public and translate it is that something AEP should be doing what do you think I think it's ultimately on on elected officials you know public officials the, the lead agencies I mean their job is supposed to be representing the people and communicating to the people so ultimately I think the burden is on them but you know you look at how these things have kind of built up over time that the incentive now is to make the environmental documentation as bulletproof as possible to guard against litigation. And so the incentive then is to just throw the kitchen sink at it and make it inscrutable, but add so much detail that your computer crashes when you try to open up, you know, one of these attachments. So that is not useful for the public at all. Um, I mean, there are some executive summaries, you could jump to some things, but um, I think, I just think the incentives are, are completely off. And so the fixes would have to come at the, at the legislative level. And then you know, assuming that's not going to happen anytime soon, then it's really up, I think, to lead agencies to, to better communicate to the public and put pressure on developers and those preparing the documents to try to, you know, write in, in plain language for people to understand and not not burden them with a, a lot of verbiage. Um, because, yeah, th- I just think we've, we've lost a threat. Of course, I say that as someone who puts out <laughs> some pretty long policy reports myself, but, uh, <laughs> but we can all do better. Well, listening to you guys speak about CEQA, and I am you know, as mentioned, a non-technical person, it's almost seems as though CEQA has an image issue, like a PR and branding issue. And so everyone agrees, it seems like collectively people we've spoken with and and you, Ethan, that there are good, there there are positive policies within CEQA and regulations. But like you said, we've lost the way. So it almost seems like CEQA should be scrapped and replaced with a new acronym <laughs> that might be welcomed a little bit more to seen as less like bureaucratic. And then, but as part of that, you know, CEQA 2.0, whatever, someone smarter than me would come up with, there would be part of the requirement could be that public engagement report. So you have this hundred page technical report. Well, I guess the reform, let's say it would be 50 pages. And then you have, you know, a three to four page uh, presentation or report, something probably like your group does, Ethan, that could be distributed to the public that's more digestible than plain language. Like, couldn't that be incorporated into the policy as part of the requirements for complying with CEQA or a future version of CEQA? 
Yeah, I mean, I I think something like that would be helpful on on the sort of disclosure part of it. You know, so just a, a requirement about you know just things like page length and and uh, and really trying to be very clear and specific about what are the, what are the key pieces of information the public would need you know under any impact analysis area and just and that should be the the maximum basically you know barring you know some other impact need or you know some special circumstance. Um, but there is the other piece of it is the mitigation side. I mean, that's really where CEQA has its power because CEQA does require mitigation if it's feasible. And so that part also needs to be really clear to the public, um, you know, what the range of mitigation options are and getting public input on that is really important too. So there's a disclosure part, there's a mitigation part, and then there's just a basic sort of public involvement part, you know, where the public can play a role in, in and strengthening the mitigation measures, and, and you know, it's not the the idea is not that the public agency and the developer has got all the answers and understands all the impact. That's why you do want to engage the community, but you don't want to, you know, essentially hand them a, a loaded weapon to to kill the project um, if they hire the right attorney or you know if they have the the resources to do so. And, and that's where we've kind of gotten off track. I, I would just add one thing, which is you know your point, Jessa, about the negative image of Sequa. I mean, as much as I've been kind of bashing Sequa here so far in this discussion, uh, I do think a lot of the negative impact image is deliberate and and brought about by industry. And because you know, let's face it, industry would never like any version of Sequa. You know, even a slim down one, they would just want to get their project done. They don't want any conditions, any review. I mean, they would love it if Sequa would go away. And so there is a, a pretty well funded opposition campaign to against CEQA, which I think is is disingenuous in, in many cases. And the problem is, is that because CEQA has begun to hurt deployment of a lot of things that we consider to be environmental good, like apartments near transit or renewable energy facilities, industry has been able to enlist, I think, a lot of unwitting allies in the advocacy world to kind of hate CEQA too. And what they don't realize is that if they're if they're bad mouthing CEQA because they don't like how it applies to apartment buildings near transit, and I would agree with them, it's frustrating when that happens. They're kind of unwittingly giving cover to an industry that you know has to face CEQA when it comes to uh, oil and gas production or logging or building freeways, and uh, and those are the kinds of things where we do want to see CEQA apply because those are not you know generally environmentally good projects to push forward. So. Um, so I do think you see that dynamic a little bit, that industry is pushing a narrative that often, you know, folks in the, in the sort of environmental or environmental adjacent community might latch on to, but, but it's not totally accurate either on that side of things. And I'll say from, so I grew up in an oil and gas family. And so I understand industry and business and why it's so difficult to build in California. And that's for a reason. Like we did it, we did it for a reason. We need clean air, clean water, clean all the things. So that our children don't, you know, have horrible health problems and we want to live a high quality of life. Like California sets the standard across the U.S. and in those regards. And yet then we have our federal government who comes out with our Inflation Reduction Act, which is a fancy title for climate climate changing policies. (laughs) And um, where I would personally like to see or professionally as well like to see is CEQA streamlining as it relates to the projects that are getting federal funding or um, tax incentives such as the renewable industry, um, renewable energies industry, renewable storage, uh, electric vehicle supply chain, all those things that that the federal government is supporting right now in modern day. Um, we don't have CEQA streamlining for, for it at all. So, I mean, we do for housing, but then, then the public agencies are really scared to use it. So 
my question is, it's multi-layered, but do you agree with CEQA streamlining for projects that we want to see? Because us CEQA professionals get really annoyed when we see things like, oh, there's an exemption for the Olympic Games, not because it doesn't have an environmental impact, but because it is an economic development opportunity that our government found to be more beneficial than going through the EIR process. And yet we have all these projects that are receiving federal funding and support for renewable energy and, and, you know, and uh, economic development, but they're not given exemptions. How do we rectify this? Yeah, well, and, you know, and, and this is, you know, further bolster your point. I mean, we have a, a now an accelerated CEQA review process for projects over $100 million that meet some environmental criteria, and then they get expedited CEQA review and immediate, you know, uh, uh court hearing in the in the appellate court so they can skip the trial court process so uh, yeah then it seems like well why do the big projects get this accelerated review but not the small apartment building near transit or the small scale solar facility so yeah there's a lot of sort of fairness questions that come up when we see how policymakers treat uh treat CEQA and where it should apply to you know to your point about the olympics but yeah i think you know seeing that the federal government is going to be devoting you know, almost 400 billion dollars in direct subsidies for clean tech uh, deployment, you know, like you were saying, renewable energy and, and energy storage, I mean, offshore wind, I mean, all, all of this stuff and and supply chains for electric vehicle batteries and, and renewable facilities as well. That is all going to run into a big buzzsaw of deployment. And a lot of that money is going to get essentially lit on fire in, uh, in a lot of processes that are not going to be that useful. I mean, just as an example, high-speed rail in California you know, a really important statewide project. It's going to help uh, reduce aviation traffic, very polluting in intrastate flights, you know, LA to San Francisco and, and the north to south. These are, and also re potentially reduce a fair amount of car traffic on like I-5 I and Highway 99 in California and uh, the Central Valley. Uh, so, you know, environmentally good project. Maybe it's going to cost 70 billion, maybe it's 120 billion. What we know is that so far they've spent about $1 billion on environmental review. The CEQA process has cost a billion bucks. And that is insane. That doesn't even count, you know, the amount of resources that the state has spent to, you know, defend the project from CEQA suits. So this is an insane amount of money. I think most people would agree we should do some, we should do environmental review on a big project like high-speed rail. But you can't tell me that we couldn't get to whatever outcome we're going to get with the CEQA process. For a lot less than a billion bucks, that we couldn't do a lot of that initial assessment, disclosure, and mitigation measures, you know, for a tiny fraction of that billion bucks. So you know, you can imagine if that's high-speed rail. Now imagine how much of that uh, dollars from the Inflation Reduction Act are going to get lit on fire for a lot of extraneous environmental review or just the delays. I mean, that doesn't even you know tally up the the cost when you delay these projects by by years. You know, the, for these developers to have to have keep paying staff, et cetera. So it's a massive amount of wasted money. And I don't think we have any assurance that we're going to get any better outcomes with spending all that money. So absolutely, we need to streamline the review process. This stuff needs to happen quickly. And one of the best ways to do it is to do a lot of this planning at a bigger picture scale. You know, do a statewide renewable energy plan that, you know, projects can understand where they're going to get CEQA benefits if, if they cite their projects in environmentally, you know, preferred areas that they get streamlining as a result. They don't have to, you know, go through any CEQA potentially or just a very slim down CEQA. And I know we have tiering provisions in CEQA, but, you know, with controversial projects, you know, to your point, they're not often used because public agency, lead agencies are often scared 
to, you know, to grant these kinds of streamlining provisions. And so they're not very, uh, you know, not very sort of uh, strong, strong in how they're used. So I think having, you know, more of that kind of tiered approach, doing master planning, figuring out there's, there's a lot of land out there, a lot of sites that are not that controversial to build these facilities. And we should be doing everything we can to give developers an, as easy a path as possible on those sites. And then, you know, for the more controversial areas, a developer wants to make more money and face, you know, more community opposition as a result, like that, that's their choice. But we should at least from a public sector perspective, be providing as many streamlined sites as possible for all of these types of facilities to get deployed as quickly as possible. Yeah, that would that would be really helpful. You know, I work for several developers in the renewable energy, the storage in the EV supply chain. And the way that it works is developers look for the market. Where is the energy market um, needing my particular product? And who are the willing buyers? Why are they willing to buy? And do I have an interconnect? And that reduces the land by like a lot. And then then we do this, this review of, um, well, how many agencies are going to be involved if I cite my project in this particular place? And just for example, um, it's really hard. Like we're in California, it's on a coast and we have the coastal commission. And then we also have the California energy commission. And then we have California department of fish and wildlife. We have the regional water quality control board. And then on the federal side, we have us fish and wildlife service. We have the EPA, we have the U S army Corps of engineers. We have, I think at one point I listed out, we had 17 different agencies from which my one developer needed permits to do a zero emissions, like carbon neutral project in an environmental justice area that would have a significant economic development. And my mind was like exploding. I was like, why? Like, how do we make this faster? Because, you know, you, you speak to these developers that come from other places, either in the US or around the globe. And they're like, well, this is a project that Californians want. It's a public benefit project. This is going to be better than it's going to uplift all of our lives. And yet, like, I'm spending millions of dollars on just the permitting process and the public engagement process. And then when I do this stakeholder engagement, they don't understand what I'm trying to do because it's new technology and I can't explain it. So it feels like it feels like we've got all this money um, and political support directed towards these these types of industries. But um, our environmental review sector and our permitting sector is just a choke. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and actually, you know, you 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 bring up a, an important point, which is that you know this isn't actually all about CEQA or you know the federal equivalent of NEPA. Even if you got rid of CEQA, you know, you're still going to have all those agencies. You're still going to have all those permits. And I, I don't mean to discount the impact that CEQA has, but and and then even you know, and then you still have those agencies. But your, to your point with renewable energy. They're economic factors, so we don't have enough transmission, available transmission capacity. And a lot of the siting decisions are driven by proximity to available transmission, you know, the other factors that that you described, Laurel. So, you know, CEQA is not the only barrier here, and, and getting rid of it is not going to magically mean a ton of, you know, infill-friendly housing appears and a ton of renewable energy development appears, but it is something that we should tackle. But, you know, when it comes to all those different permitting agencies, you know, one option is to have a master permitting process which happens in some contexts, and often there needs to be a state, federal MOU to make that happen. The legislature could step in and, and like they did recently with renewable energy and basically say the state is going to be the, the lead permitting agency, no longer the local government for certain renewable energy facilities. Maybe we need to do something like that on housing. You know, We've seen local governments right and left just thwarting new housing development in their communities. 
And maybe we need the state now to step in and say, you know, at, at some point, this is an issue of statewide concern, statewide livability. We're going to be the, the ones to permit these projects, uh, no longer at this hyper-local level where all the neighbors have an incentive to, to shoot down anything in their neighborhood. So we definitely need to tackle the, the permitting process uh, as a whole, not just as it relates to CEQA. And then on things like energy, you know, transmission lines get held up by exactly the same thing, too. So we can't build transmission in less than a decade in California, because we've got all these agencies that have to tick the boxes and environmental review and so forth. So we've kind of tied ourselves into knots at exactly the time where we need to be deploying as much of this infrastructure as possible if we have any hope of reducing our carbon footprint to what the scientists tell us are are manageable, sustainable levels for the planet. Well, listen, you guys talk about the processes and all the different permitting agencies and CEQA, of course, um, you know, specific to California. And California is, you know, very progressive, if not the most progressive state, I think, as far as climate goes. And there's some very ambitious and aggressive goals. And so there's just this conflicting force of follow these very regulated, cumbersome, expensive, $1 billion for high-speed rail is mind-blowing for the environmental review. That is mind-blowing. But at the same time, do all this, but we got to meet these goals in, you know, five to 10 years, 2030. It's like, well, like, it's almost like the net like impact of the project should be taken into consideration for the environmental review process. Like it should shave off like some requirements or years, or I I don't know enough about the technical aspect, but it seems that if you're able to communicate that value add, it's like, listen, we can get this high speed railed, reduce X amount of cars, reduce, you know, X, like, you know, CO2 carbon, like whatever pounds (laughs) admitted. (laughs) <laughs> I think that's a technical term, right? I picked that up somewhere. And so, um, but, you know, be able to communicate that and like have some, like if it's over this certain value that there's some board or, you know, some over regular, some body that you're saying this like master, like permitting plan to streamline this because we're never going to get anywhere. And we're just, like you said, we're just caught up in, in legal review and environmental review. And it seems, it sounds uh, very defeating. <laughs> you guys talk about this? (laughs) Well, you know, it is, I don't mean to gloss over how much progress has been made recently on reforming uh, all this stuff. I mean, reforming the permitting, reforming uh, the environmental review process. Um, So for example, just on the housing side where we do a lot of work, you know, it isn't just about environmental review. It's also about the zoning uh, what the zoning would allow. Does it allow apartments near transit? Most, you know, local governments don't allow that in many cases, especially, uh, you know, well-heeled, well-resourced local governments. They keep their zoning all single family. But that has been that has been changed recently by the legislature. So we've, we've tackled that part of the process. On CEQA, we've actually done, Jess, a fair amount of what you're describing. I mentioned that accelerated review process for certain projects over $100 million. For them to qualify for that, they have to meet a number of environmental benchmarks. They have to be net zero greenhouse gas. They have to uh, you know, meet certain uh, criteria in terms of not generating a lot of extra traffic. And on the transportation impacts piece, we've done a lot of work on SB 743, which passed in 2013 and, and really dramatically changed the transportation impacts analysis. Now, if you're in an area that's a low vehicle miles traveled area, so an area usually in this kind of city centers, you get essentially a free pass on transportation. Uh, under CEQA. And now outlying sprawl projects that are dumping a huge amount of car traffic onto the region's roads and highways, they now have to mitigate and reduce overall driving miles. So, you know, I, to your point, that's an environmental benchmark that if projects meet it, they do get CEQA benefits now. And then also on the housing side, 
we've got ministerial uh, approval processes required under the law if you have you know a, pro- a housing project in an area that's behind on building affordable housing and you've got a certain component of affordable housing you get an over the counter permit that, that the locals can't trigger sequa because there's no longer any discretion and so we've it's called buy right approval processes and and that's also helped get a number of pretty substantial projects a lot of affordable housing built a lot faster than they did even just a few years ago. So the legislature has really, I think, begun to step up on this. And we've seen some very positive reforms. I don't think it's going to be enough, you know, for industry folks, because, you know, you have a lot of lawyers out there representing sprawl developers. So they're Mm -hmm. not happy about that change. But, you know, sorry, if you're building a project out in the outlying area, that's not that's not good for the environment or the economy, you know, to force people to have really long, expensive commutes. And if the flip side of that is that it's easier to build in infill areas near jobs and services, that's where we want more people to have the option and, 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 and affordability to live in, because that's that's where quality of life is better. Their commutes are, are a lot shorter. And from an environmental perspective, we're preserving more farmland and open space and, uh, and a lot less pollution in the process. And see how like complicated, see how much you had to explain and how much terminology you use that is like industry specific and very professional that like an average layperson is just not going to comprehend. And that's yep. like, these conversations are at such like a yeah. higher level. Like you need multiple degrees to even keep up or understand. Um, you know, I, well, you know, I, I said how we tied ourselves in the knots yeah. and, you know, the problem is, is that you know, the only way to untie the knot is to understand the knot in the first place. So in a way, you know, we're kind of stuck needing a bunch of nerds to figure out how to unwind this uh, and do it, you know, hopefully responsibly and successfully, because, you know, you don't want people just coming in there with a sledgehammer necessarily, because, you know, you can sometimes get a lot of unintended consequences in that process. Oh, for sure. I mean, if, if things are entangled to that level and it's all interconnected, then you pull one thing and everything else unravels. And then how do you explain that? Yep. <laughs> so it's just, it's very complicated and, and, um, controversial. And I think I, I'm posturing that that is why the youth of America is super interested in environmental justice because they're experiencing it. They feel it. They're witnessing, um, how the environmental quality is affecting them and how land use and siting of these particular projects is affecting them. And that is their introduction into the environmental profession and CEQA it isn't necessarily through, uh, public disclosure of discretionary actions in the court of law. You know, I mean, like all that language is not that inspiring, but what can be very inspiring is um, you have a say in what gets built where um, and how that affects your future and um, systemic issues that can be changed. Um, does the climate group at Berkeley, like your office, um, how are they looking at environmental justice? Is that something that you guys are, are looking at from a climate perspective and commenting on and writing policy papers on? Yeah, we, uh, that, you know, equity is something that we really weave throughout all of our work. Um, and we could certainly do a, a better job at it. So I don't want to make it sound like we're the equity experts. But uh, I mean, first of all, it's an imperative for multiple reasons. I mean, if if you want to get policy done well, you have to have an equity component because it's if you have a policy that is going to have inequitable outcomes and impacts that doesn't have you know buy-in from all parts of California, it's not going to be a successful policy in the long run. Uh, and certainly not from a moral perspective, but not even necessarily from a practical perspective of trying to achieve what you want to achieve. So it's really important that we uh, include those voices. So we try to include those voices and when we have you know, stakeholder input, equity is a big part of that. I mean, this SB 743 work that we that I just talked about, um, you know, in terms of transportation impacts, 
that's something where we have to take equity into consideration because if we're going to require mitigation of big sprawl projects and they're going to fund ways to reduce driving, we don't want just the wealthy communities to benefit from those investments. We want lower income communities to get they you know improve bus service and and bike lanes and you know maybe even direct investment and, and affordable housing near transit as, as ways of reducing overall driving. So equity is definitely a big part of it. And like I say, from a perspective of how we do this successfully, you really need to democratize our climate policy approach. It, it can't be just you know subsidies for wealthy people to get solar panels and electric vehicles and home batteries. I mean those are all important things to get, but our where our public dollars should go is not necessarily for those residents that can afford that stuff on their own. It needs to go to lower income communities so that they have a stake in in the climate fight and that also that they see the benefits. Because if you do drive an electric vehicle, if you do have rooftop solar and a home battery, you're going to save a bunch of money. You're going to have a better quality of life. You're going to have obviously reduced fueling costs from electricity instead of driving on gasoline. You're going to have a lot less maintenance. If you can afford an apartment near transit, maybe you don't have to buy a car at all. You can just, you know, ride a bike or take transit to get to your job or where you need to go. And think how much money you'd save if you didn't have to own, you know, that second car, for example, or any car at all. So, you know, we want to make sure the benefits are there for everyone to feel like they have a stake and for everyone to get the benefits, in particular those people who really need the help right now. Because, you know, right now California is an incredibly unequal society. Uh, we have incredible income inequality. People are really struggling. They're paying a massive amount, massive percentage of their incomes for housing and transportation, and it's not sustainable. We've seen an absolute hemorrhaging of uh, middle class, working class out of the state, and this becomes a recipe for you know essentially like a third world country where you have a, a, a tiny bit of people at the top who are living very well and a massive underclass you know, jammed in really substandard living conditions, RVs, homeless encampments, you know, serving the the wealthy class. And that's that's not the kind of California that I grew up in. And I don't think it's a California that anyone wants to live in. So we, we need to really take some drastic steps here. Thank you. What's your vision for California? If we're a well-oiled machine up to your standards, what does it look like? Well, it's housing. Ultimately, to me, this all boils down to housing. That is the number one stressor for pretty much everyone in the state, every business in the state, you know, how they pay their employees. I mean, think how much they have to pay their employees just to afford a basic uh, place to live. My wife uh, teaches at San Francisco State University. They can't hire faculty from out of state. They can't, the faculty can't afford to, to move here on those salaries. So they can't, they can't fill open positions. A huge percentage of the students are either homeless or housing insecure. And so to me, this all boils down to housing. And the crazy thing is that this was, this is completely free to fix. This doesn't cost any money. Uh, I mean, it does if we want to subsidize affordable housing, and we need subsidized affordable housing, but most low-income people live in market-rate housing. We could be essentially flooding the market with housing that developers would have an economic incentive to provide in infill areas if we allowed apartments to be built in our major economic centers. That would We could open the spigots on, on private sector investment because the, the market is there, the incomes are here. And we could really boost supply dramatically. That's not going to address uh, low-income housing right away. So we can use the tax increased tax revenue, in some cases, increased fees uh, and inclusionary zoning requirements to require that some part of that be affordable units. Um, and then, like I say, with increased tax revenue, we could dedicate that to subsidizing affordable units. And then in the long run, those apartment buildings, 
you know, they do filter down and become uh, housing that's uh, accessible and affordable to people of all income ranges, because we know that that's the case, because like I say, most low income people in California do live in market rate housing now. So um, so that's the vision for California, ultimately build as much as we can near our existing transit infrastructures and in our existing urbanized areas and do that as quickly as we can. And then that preserves a lot of our open space that bolsters our transit networks. Um, and, uh, and, and allows people to, to live here without, you know, really just killing themselves to try to afford it. I mean, you couldn't have set up the AEP Institute any better than that. Um, we will be hosting an all day, um, think tank, uh, workshop solution oriented, uh, program about addressing housing in California, um, uh, so that we can meet Ethan's vision for the well-oiled <laughs> machine that we could be. Uh, that'll be hosted in June of next year, 2023. Our planning starts this fall. We're looking for speakers, Ethan. And uh, obviously we want as many participants as possible, given that this is a massive uh, way to move the needle and affect our quality of life in California. Thank you so much, Ethan, for knocking it out of the park just then. And I think this is the perfect time to do our wrap up, wrap up five. Yes, Ethan, we'll close out with our, our wrap up rapid five questions. So what is your favorite daily habit? Um, probably just getting some exercise, getting outside, you know, walking, uh, biking, just yeah, being outside, at least on a daily basis. Great. Um, three things that you'd bring to a deserted island. Uh, I'd bring my guitar. Um, I'd like to bring a good book, uh, preferably a big book, depending how long I'm going to stay on this desert, deserted island. I was going to say, even is it your own book? <laughs> you released a book. Is I, it your I own? I do have a book. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I do a book on the history of uh, LA's rail system. It took me 10 years to finish that up. So I don't think I need to read that anymore. <laughs> I'm happy to read someone else's book. Uh, and then if I can. I mean, I'd like to bring my wife, so I have someone to hang out with. Uh, so I don't know if that counts, but uh, we'll allow it. <laughs> okay, all right. And my kids too. I don't want to throw my kids under the bus. There. <laughs> okay. Even we, sorry, Jessa, we have had okay. we've had many guests who have decided not to bring their children <laughs> and choose their spouse. So they're like, we've already raised the kids. We don't. They're on their own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, my kids are almost to the point where they don't have to come to the dessert island. I think they'd still, <laughs> they'd still probably want to hang out. They, they'll need us, you know, for the ba- to do their laundry and that kind of stuff. <laughs> okay. What's your favorite environmental policy? My favorite environmental policy. That's a great question. I mean, it's probably the Clean Air Act. I mean, that, that has just had a massive impact on uh, quality of life, public health. Uh, and now even zero emission vehicles, you know, it's because of the way the Clean Air Act is written that California has been able to really help launch uh, an entire transformation of the automobile sector. So we have, you know, these battery electric vehicles driving around. It's all because of the Clean Air Act. Yes. Favorite flora or fauna? Uh, I'm more of a plant person than an animal person, although I do love dogs. Um, but generally wild animals, you know, not a not really into like wrestling bears, uh, but I do love plants and I love oak trees and redwood trees. Those are my two faves. So great. Okay. So finish this sentence. Wouldn't it be cool if. Wouldn't it be cool if we could have the same standard of living and economic productivity that we have, but working an average of four hours a day and yes. have a ton of free time to do whatever we want to do, pursue our interests. I'm here for that. Please and thank you. 
Thank you so much, Ethan. <laughs> Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. It's been great to chat with you guys. Yeah, we hope to see you again soon, hopefully at the AEP Institute, if not in another realm. <laughs> and also want to share that you are a podcast host. You've got radio shows. Do you want to just touch on the, the I think it was three? That, uh, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, well, I, 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 help, I host a radio show on our local NPR affiliate in the San Francisco Bay Area called State of the Bay. It airs Monday nights at six and you can stream it from anywhere in the world on KALW 91.7 FM. And uh, I also have a podcast uh, through UC Berkeley Law School called Climate Break. And we feature climate solutions in less than two minutes, interviewing people from all over the world, doing really interesting, innovative things to address climate change, reduce emissions, adapt to a changing climate. So check out climatebreak.org. Excellent. Okay. And we will be touching base with you because the AAP podcast wants to get connected with knock, knock what's the what. Absolutely. Anytime. Thanks so much, Ethan. Thank you both. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to be updated when new episodes are released and leave us a review to let us know what you think. It also really helps us to share the podcast with others who may enjoy learning about the environmental industry. If you want to submit a shout out or any feedback, please send an email or voice memo to podcast at califaep.org. The email again is podcast with an S, podcast at califaep.org.